Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 is not what I'm preaching from this morning, but the connection we'll see. So the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write this letter, and it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and the training in righteousness. So as we continue looking at the gospel narrative of the advent, the first appearing of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, let's reaffirm, re-engage with our commitment to believing in the total truth of the Bible. The idea that God breathed into the biblical writers, he did this by his spirit, spirit being the Greek word pneuma, which means breath. So when God breathed into the writers of scripture in this way, God was ensuring that what they wrote was what he wanted to say and nothing else. So this is what theologians mean when they talk about the plenary inspiration of the scripture. Plenary meaning full or complete. So there are no particular bits of scripture that are more or less God-breathed than other bits. So as we come to a passage that may be super familiar to us, we may have heard it growing up at this point in our lives hundreds of times, maybe. But as we come to a super familiar passage, and it may seem hard to apply, uh, we must believe it's completely breathed out by God, by the God of the universe for our training in righteousness. So as we review, Jonathan preached Last week, as we're observing this Advent season, he preached from the beginning of Matthew's narrative about the birth of Jesus. So we want to remain in that posture, remain in that posture of beholding the historical, the unexpected, and the redemptive plan of God for, for his people through the gift of Jesus. So the application there to slow down to pay attention to this wonderful reality. Let's remain in our minds and our hearts in that posture in this time this morning and then throughout this season. So we're gonna continue this morning considering the Heavenly Father's plan and this historical record of the most amazing event in the history of the world. So as Matthew one describes Jesus's birth, we'll move into Matthew two this morning and it recounts the varied human response to the birth of Jesus. That's what we'll see this morning. So if you want to pick up and follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures, we'll be in Matthew 2, reading verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. In verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. 
After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Would you pray with me? God, this is your word, the words from God himself. May our souls be stirred by your very word. Many here have heard this word many times. But would your spirit allow us to consider things from your truth this morning like never before? Teach us timeless truth, and may your very words pierce our souls. Amen. So if there's a title for the message this morning, we would say deeply troubled, indifference, and great joy as we are seeing Matthew recount the responses to Jesus' birth. And then as we want to see from this historical narrative, what is, so what? So what about it? How does it apply to our lives in contemporary times? So a question we want to address is how have we responded, past tense, how have we responded to the great news of Jesus' birth, if we've heard this all before? How are we responding presently to the gift of Christ? And then what are we doing about others' responses to Jesus? So we must not become, consider this, we must not become bored or casually familiar with the historical reality of our king's birth, and we must joyously give of our best to the Lord. That's what we want to consider this morning as we look at, again, this maybe familiar passage, this familiar event. But as we look back, let's look at the details and see the responses to this amazing event responses to the gift of Jesus. So as we go back to the beginning of the passage, it's approximately two years, two years or so past the events of chapter one. It's two years after the birth of Christ, up to two years after the birth of Christ. And then the setting, Bethlehem in Judea, is located six miles south, southwest of Jerusalem. That's the setting that we see. And it establishes What we see there, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, what we see is it's establishing Jesus. It's establishing the baby that was born as the Christ, as coming from the line of Judah. So Herod the king, it says, in the days of Herod the king, who was Herod? Commonly Herod the first or Herod the great. He ruled Israel uh, and Judah. He was not completely Jewish. He's said to have been an Edomian which is from the line of Esau's descendants, historically the Edomite people who were a warring people with Israel, against Israel. King Saul, King David, frequently warring with these people. That's who Herod is in the line of. This is appointed by Rome as king of the Jews at this time. This is who's ruling. This is Herod. So he ruled firmly, at times ruthlessly. We have other historical records showing that Herod, this Herod, put to death one of his wives, had her murdered, had some of his sons and other family members murdered because they threatened his reign. This is Herod, and this is the time when our king is born, who was ruling at the time. And then you see there in verse 1, 
In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Came to Jerusalem. So Herod is, is a key player here, but then these wise men. These wise men from the east, the first worshipers, these court magicians, if you will, astrologers, maybe perhaps from Babylon, present day Iran or Iraq. They're coming and they have, uh, there's been speculation over time. There's the, the popular Christmas song, We Three Kings, speculation that maybe they were kings and they were three. And that just comes from looking at the gifts they gave. There were three gifts named and that uh, they were expensive or precious gifts, but we have no, uh, nothing in Scripture to tell us that there were three. There could have been many more with them at the time, and there's nothing to tell us they were kings. In fact, astrology and interpreting dreams or the, the movement of the stars to interpret the future wouldn't have been uh, the role of a king. They could have been counselors to kings or a king. But they were, nonetheless, they were Gentiles. They were unclean people, according to the Old Testament, the ceremonial laws. Magi, another translation you may see, the Magi from the East. So this is uh, Magi. They are unclean Gentiles, priests, maybe experts in the mysteries of astrology, for example. So don't think. David Blaine, when you think of these guys as far as magic, but they were at the time considered magicians or involved in this type of magic. So it was a, astrology was a big deal in the ancient world, and they would use, again, the stars to interpret things out of uh, Old Testament prophecy or interpret things that would happen in the future. So again, we don't know how many of them there were. They could have had an entourage with them. They were um, perhaps wealthy and, and powerful guys, but, and they could have had other people with them, and they had enough to get the attention, the attention of Herod the king. They had enough to get the attention of what it says, all Jerusalem. We don't know their names. We don't know the specific details of who they were, but we do know they came from the east, and they traveled west to find Jesus. So these wise men are other key players in the scene here. And so they come to Herod, and they come saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So why did they ask this? Why are they coming? What is going on? Why did they travel probably hundreds of mi miles to Jerusalem to ask this question? So the answer is these magi, they could have had. They could have had knowledge of prophecy, knowledge of the Old Testament uh, people of God, men that were assigned to be the, the, the mouthpiece for God, the voice for God speaking on his behalf. They could have had knowledge of that and, they, and be able to predict what would happen. And they're seeing signs that would line up with this prophecy. But the bottom line is the sovereign will of God. The sovereign will of God was fulfilled in this event that was told about hundreds of years before. So let's not miss the amazing reality of that, that what was told of the coming of the Messiah, the signs that were to be given were being fulfilled in this time. Something that had been talked about for hundreds of years before is being fulfilled. And the Magi, these wise men, they're a part of it. So we see where is this prophecy coming from? We have one uh, example from the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, it speaks of God's people traveling from Mount Sinai to the boundary of the promised land. 
And so as they are journeying, they're becoming a prominent, numerous people, and they get the attention. They are threatening to the pagan king of the land, Balak, and he calls on a magician. He calls on Balaam. He calls on Balaam to curse the people of Israel. He's threatened. He's worried about this numerous, prominent people coming into his land, but this magician, Balaam, he doesn't curse the people. He ends up blessing God's people instead, and his final oracle is recorded in Numbers 24. Numbers Numbers 24, 16, and 17 includes this, I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So the wise men could have had knowledge of this prophecy, but nonetheless, this is the prophecy that's being fulfilled. It mentions a scepter, a a scepter that will rise from God's people and a star that will come refers to the one who will rule and who will deliver God's people from their enemies. So this, this Old Testament promise by a man from the east telling about a star that will lead to the king among the people of Israel, this is prophecy about the Messiah that is, is revealed and fulfilled here in Matthew's recounting of real events. This is amazing. This is wonderful news for us. And it goes on. So when Herod hears this, when he hears their response, when he hears that they're coming to find the king of the Jews, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him is what it says. And so he knows he's frightened. He's deeply disturbed. He's threatened. Again, this is the guy who's had family members killed because they threatened his reign. So when he hears and sees these wise men coming and what they're seeking, he is disturbed by this. He is deeply troubled. That's his response. And so he, in that moment, he knows apparently who to summon, who to bring to him to get some clarity and look at who he chooses. He chooses the chief priests, the religious leaders of God's people, and the scribes essentially lawyers who would observe and interpret the law for God's people. He calls them in to ask, um, who is this and where was the Christ to be born? So they're going to respond to him. Now, this is amazing as well. So we now have the, the chief priests and the scribes being summoned by this wicked king, this non-Jewish king, and he brings them in and they're going to respond to him. They're well aware of what is going on. They're well aware of how to answer his question of where is the Christ uh, to be born. So look with me there in verse 5. They're going to tell him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. So they quote, they're going to give him Micah 5.2, and then Matthew is going to paraphrase that for us and for his readers to uh, show them what was the intended meaning of the prophecy. So they say, verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. So this should deeply disturb us as we look at this. The people of God, the religious leaders of the day, they come and they respond. So hearing and reading, they understand what's going on. They understand where the Christ is to be born. They understand what the, the magi from the east are seeking. And this is all transpiring in their time, in their lifetimes, right in front of their, arms, their, their eyes. And these leaders, they have intimate knowledge. They can apparently just, just quote this and they identify it's Micah 5.2. They know the prophecy. They give it to the king, an accurate answer. So they know God's word. 
well enough to give him uh, and make this connection, answer the question. But they did nothing about this knowledge. We don't see anything about them going with the Magi to see, has the long-awaited Messiah come? Is this actually true? We want to see it. They don't go with him. And apparently they are conspirators or they are with Herod in being threatened by this girl. Or if nothing else, they're indifferent. They know the answer and they just respond to the king, here's your question. And then we don't hear about them being involved until the life of Christ. And we know how much of the Jewish leaders and the same group of of priests and, and, and scribes, how they respond to Jesus in hostility. But these people, they know the truth and their response is indifference at best, inaction. So they quote from the prophet Micah. Now look at Matthew's paraphrase of the prophecy. So he quotes this with intentional purposes to emphasize that Bethlehem was in the land of Judah, to remind the reader that Jesus is in the kingly line, the line of Judah, the line of David. He is king. So he mentions Judea three times in this passage. So it's no mistake that uh, the member of the tribe of Judah qualifies for the Davidic throne, that Jesus is king. Matthew makes it abundantly clear. He's also sure to mention that Jesus wouldn't just be a ruler. Look at what he says there, who will shepherd my people Israel. So he says, yes, this king is also going to be in line with 2 Samuel 5, 2, what it says about, uh, as the Lord said to David, you shall be a shepherd of my people Israel. So all the kings in the line of David and the line of Judah, including David, failed at this. They failed to deliver the people secure the people, protect the people, feed God's people. They all failed. But this is pointing to, and Matthew's making it abundantly clear, this one, this will be the perfect shepherd. All pointed to the perfect shepherd who would be king and lead lead the people back to God. Matthew shows us the babies born in Bethlehem of Judea will be, this baby will be the perfect shepherd. It's responded with deeply troubling to Herod. It's responded, this news, this reality of the perfect shepherd, the one who's going to come, the long-awaited Messiah, the king, and then the religious leaders of the day who have intimate knowledge of God's word, they respond to it with indifference at best. Inaction. Or if nothing else, wanting to help Herod snuff this problem out. But let's see the further response from the Magi. So in verse 7, Herod's going to pretend to want to worship the child king. It's a deceptive move on the, on the, uh, on the side of this wicked king. So, but he actually wants to know, he wants to know the location so he can deploy his executioners to go and kill this threat to his reign like he's done time and time again. So don't miss that Herod is threatened by these events. Now that's key. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't think that it's, it's not true. He views this as legitimate on some level that he is threatened. Uh, his reign is threatened. So God offers, think of, think of Herod. Think of, could he be experiencing, uh, have, a, have a troubled soul? He's killed one of his wives. He's murdered his sons because of the threat to his reign. And God brings magi from hundreds of miles away to present to him the one, the only way that he could find forgiveness, that he could 
find peace, that he could submit himself to the king of all, find peace and rest for his soul. God offers rest to this troubled soul, brings the magi to his doorstep. What a loving God. But his response is still hostility. His response is still, he's deeply threatened by this. So people, people are going to respond to the good news of Jesus in various ways. But it is clear to see that God hides the truth of his grace from no one. It is all about our response. It is all about the response to truth. God doesn't conceal. God doesn't hide his grace and the gift of Christ from anyone. What a blessing that is. So we see the supernatural movement of the star here. It's leading the magi, the the wise men to the precise location, location of Jesus. And then in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So they arrive months or even even up to a year or so after Jesus' birth. They come into the house where Mary and Joseph had the baby boy Jesus at the time. And when they come to the place where the star leads them, they follow in faith and they see where the star rested and they are, what is their response? They are overwhelmed. They are filled with joy, overjoyed. I was trying to think, this is a pretty intense description of their response and I was trying to think of the last time maybe I experienced being overjoyed Um, parents you can relate I mean definitely the birth of children is is a joyous time but trying to think of examples in my life maybe where I've witnessed uh, being overjoyed and I remember uh, some of you have now had the misfortune I guess uh, of meeting my dog Astro and when I brought Astro home as a puppy and was a surprise to my daughters. And for some reason, they, they, I was supposed to just be bringing home donuts. And uh, for some reason, they came outside to greet me when I drove in the, the driveway. And uh, I opened the door, and there's a little puppy in there, you know, surprise. Astro's in there. And my daughter, Karis, who was 9 or 10 at the time, she just falls back on the driveway, just on her, flatten her back, and is just kind of crying, starts crying. And didn't know initially what was wrong, but then she was able to, to kind of share with us. Like, she was just so happy. She was just so happy. So, so in a way, uh, maybe that's some sort of semblance of being overjoyed, overwhelmed with exceedingly great joy at the gift of a puppy. But, but this pale, that, that pales in comparison. Pales in comparison to what we see, the responses from these gent, Gentile wise men when they find the Christ child. So... These Gentile, Gentile, again, noblemen, they bow down in adoration of the baby Jesus. What a picture of humility. What a picture of truly being overjoyed at this reality. And then the gifts that were given. So we're going to see their response is exceedingly great joy, overwhelmed with joy, worshiping, bowing down and worshiping the child king, the perfect shepherd. They get it. They make these connections, then they're going to give gifts. They have brought gifts that are worthy of a king. So these gifts, they've, they've led commentators and scholars maybe to not resist speculating on the meaning of the gifts. But to be fair, we, we have to consider uh, why the Holy Spirit would move the pen or the, the hand of Matthew to write and give us the specific gifts. So these gifts allow, uh, and, and then elsewhere in Scripture, we're allowed to see what, what these gifts were for 
what the connection was, why they would be given in this setting. So as we look at the gifts given, it is possible that they were given for a specific purpose to share with us, to teach us, to teach anyone who would pay attention who Jesus is. So the first one, gold, the first one mentioned, gold, given to Jesus as king. So gold mentioned throughout the Old Testament and New Testament fits Matthew's focus on showing Jesus as the long-awaited king. So it's mentioned in relation to kings and their wealth and their status, uh, attaining and having gold and gold instruments and implements all throughout Scripture. So gold showing Jesus the long-awaited king. The second one, frankincense. Frankincense, I don't know what it is, um, but it is apparently a tree resin, kind of gum-like resin from a certain tree, very aromatic. It's mentioned in Nehemiah, mentioned in Exodus and Leviticus in the worship of God. It was actually kept in the uh, temple chamber and used in worship. So this frankincense given to Jesus because he's not only king, he's God. He is God. Now, this is a stumbling point for many, stumbling point for many in our own contemporary culture. They don't understand Jesus is God, and Jesus did not hide that from anybody. In one particular place, he said it and responded in John 8, 58. Jesus 8, 58, he responds to the Jewish people questioning him, and he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claimed, without a doubt, to be God, Yahweh himself. Gold given as king, frankincense given to Jesus as God, and myrrh. Myrrh, the last one, again, another sap-like tree resin. Apparently, it was used in the ancient world to anoint dead bodies. We see myrrh coming into play with Joseph and Arimathea, uh, the Pharisees, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, when they were going to um, prepare Jesus' body for burial in the tomb. So myrrh given to Jesus as the God-man, fully human, but also fully God. This theological reality, this this mind-blowing reality that Jesus, the hypostatic union, was fully God and fully man. And he, Jesus, came for a reason. He was born as a man to die. So the wise men worshiped Jesus for who he was and who he is. Jesus is king, Jesus is God, and Jesus died for us. This God king died for us so that we could be his people and worship him forever through faith. So the wise men, they responded to the angel's warning. They didn't return to report to Herod. They were truly worshiping. They were overjoyed at the truth. So these men, they gave such valuable gifts. They were overjoyed because they found a baby and they followed a star to the little town of Bethlehem in response to known prophecy. And they didn't know about all that we know. So think about their response. They knew something about the coming king. But think about what we know. We know of his death for sinners. We know of his resurrection from the dead. It is all about, it is all about how one responds to the historical reality of Jesus, isn't it? Is that not, is that not the most significant question to answer in life? Who is Jesus. So the gift of knowing and responding to Jesus as Lord 
He is king. He is God. He atoned for our rebellion against God on the cross. That is our salvation. Accepting and treasuring this reality, the response. We've seen the varied responses. Accepting and treasuring the reality of who Jesus is and what he did secures for us eternal life in peace with God and presently allows us to be forgiven of all of our sin, past, present, and future, and to live in relationship with our Heavenly Father and to grow by the power of the Holy Spirit to be like Jesus. This is salvation, and it's all based on our response to the reality of who Jesus is. Paul, in his letter to the Christian community in Rome, he summarizes or really gets at the heart of salvation really well in Romans 10, 9, and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth you confess and are saved. Now understand what he's saying. These aren't magic words. It's not, hey, pray a prayer or say, say Jesus is Lord and you're saved. He's saying, if God gives you the gift of faith where your heart believes that this Christ, this king, this God-man came, bled, died, lived the perfect life, and then rose again, if he gives us the gift of faith to believe that in our heart, the only response, the only right, right response is not hostility. It's not being deeply troubled. It's not being indifferent. It's not anything except he is Lord. He's my master. He's my leader. He's my life. That's salvation. How are we responding to the great news of Jesus' birth? How are we responding to the gift of Christ? What are we doing about others' responses to Jesus? We can't become bored or casually familiar with this historical reality of our king's birth. And we must joyously give of our best to our master. I was down on Cary Street this week with my friend Brad, and we were looking to talk with people about Jesus. And we encountered a man, spoke with him, sharing briefly about Jesus and asking him what he believed about Jesus. And he, he mentioned, it was, it was a little bit of an odd interaction, but he mentioned he wasn't Jewish, but he, he agreed with or sided with the Jewish side of things, believing that Jesus was a great teacher, Jesus was a great prophet, but nothing more. So we presented to him, maybe you've heard of, I think popularized by C.S. Lewis, kind of the line of argumentation of, well, Jesus was either a liar or he was a lunatic or he's Lord. There's no way to get around it. Now this uh, mid-19th century Scottish preacher, just looking up where this came from, it actually wasn't originated by C.S. Lewis, but it came from this uh, Christian preacher in the 18th century, John Duncan. So he formulated what is called this trilemma. And then we see C.S. Lewis writing about it in 1942. Previous to that, Watchman Nee in 1936 wrote about this. But C.S. Lewis, he writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. So the argument, it can be formulated like this. If Jesus were not Lord, he would be a liar or a lunatic. We've already read John 8, 58. Jesus was neither a liar nor a lunatic, so therefore Jesus is Lord. That's the argument. 
Lewis goes on to write, we may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. We have that in, in the historical record. He produced mainly three effects. This is what Lewis says, hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. There's no indifference. There's no casual familiarity with the reality of Jesus. So God in his sovereignty and in his great providence, he shouts from history past that Jesus is Lord of all. It is not concealed to us. Hallelujah for that. For lack of a better way of saying it, let's not let others get away with believing Jesus is anything less than Lord of all, the Savior of the world. These are Gentile wise men coming to him. He's the Savior of the world, God himself. So we may not respond in fear. We may not not be deeply troubled about this news, but let's not catch ourselves in the year of our Lord, 2023, as we celebrate the advent of Christ, his first appearing, let us not be too casual about who he is. Let's not be indifferent or inactive like the scribes, like the religious leaders, the chief priests of the day, as they were summoned by Herod. Let us not be like them. Let's be like the wise men. Let's respond with great joy and give him our best. So what does that look like? As we think of maybe practical application of this historical narrative, there's many ways and and lists we could look at, but let's just consider this. What does this look like? Giving him our best and being overjoyed at the reality of Jesus. It does look like something. It looks like something. It should look like something in this season. Just thinking, is, is Jesus the third act? Is he the fifth wheel in our Christmas celebration? whether it's our celebration with family and our own feelings and thoughts about Christmas, let's, let's do everything we can. Let's do everything we can to make our Lord and King the centerpiece, the centerpiece of even this time. I don't, I don't, if, I don't think there's a threat of maybe over-spiritualizing Christmas. If we, if we get up to that point, then maybe we can talk, but let's, let's have that discussion. It's something that Lacey and I come back to just in family life and And I know I have to pray uh, the Lord just guide me and wake me up at times to make our lives, to make our our family's life at Christmas being just overtly Christian. Maybe here's here's kind of a a test. We could say uh, some sort of test. If Bible reading happening in a family gathering or or being inserted into some sort of uh, family tradition or prayer happening in a setting or Christ and spiritual things being talked about, would that be awkward within our family? In our own lives, would that be like awkward or seem out of place? If so, let's, how can we remedy that? How can we remedy that? By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter writes this, 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In faith, in faith, if our response to him is great joy, inexpressible, exceedingly great, then he's going to get our best. Pray with me. Heavenly Father,
throughout the history of the world, your created world, you have always been and you remain too good to us. And part of your goodness and faithfulness and love is evident in that you have preserved for us over uh, 2,000 years later the reality of the birth of your son, the giving of the gift of the Christ. Thank you. Thank you that you haven't hidden that. Thank you that you've made a way to peace with you. And Lord, may we celebrate that with abundantly great and overwhelming joy and be, uh, that would be evident to those that we know and love and interact with. Help us not hide our uh, following you as Lord. So I pray that you would help us in that through the power of your spirit. And in Jesus' precious and powerful name I pray, amen.